Uh, we're going to jump into a new series in the book of Philippians. So if you guys can, turn to the book of Philippians, one of my favorite books in the New Testament. Uh, Paul's books kind of go by size, in order of size downward, beginning with Romans. And so you get after Ephesians, you get to the book of Philippians. And we're going to do a five-week series in Philippians. Uh, this week I'm doing chapter one. Next week I'll be doing chapter two. We've got a friend of ours, um, of, of someone that Carolyn actually grew up with, uh, but Michael McBride is going to be here doing chapter three the week after that. And then uh, I just found out two days ago um, that Gary Brashears, so many of you remember Dr. Gary Brashears, who for 35 years or more has been uh, the professor of theology at Western Seminary. Uh, so he finally got out of his commitment, which was to preach at another church. Don't tell anyone because that would make me feel bad. Um, but so he got out of that commitment so he could come here and talk on the beginning of chapter 4 in Philippians, which was really important to me because it's a hallmark passage about uh, not being anxious about anything. And Dr. Bashir is going to come and unpack that for us and show us how we have misapplied and misinterpreted that for much of Christian history. And he's going to set it back into context and it's going to blow our minds. So you get Dr. Gary Bashir's at the end of November. And then the first week in December, I'll be finishing up this five-week series on Philippians. And then the following two weeks after that, we go into a study on Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, I thought about calling the series Madonna, but didn't. Because uh, that, that name is, after 2,000 years, been ruined, evidently. Um, give it another 100 years, maybe it'll come back. Um, but so uh, then we do two weeks on, uh, on Mary, which is going to be fun. And then the last Sunday before Christmas, we have Leroy Barber uh, coming over. And Leroy Barber, um, one of my good friends, was doing mission year out in, in uh, Atlanta and is now in Portland doing an organization called Word Made Flesh. Works in urban areas all around the country. Uh, and he's going to come join us. And then if you guys are really sticking around for Christmas... On Christmas Eve, uh, we've got Gary Brashears joining us, as well as several other musical friends and guests for our Christmas Eve at the Tower event that we do every year. Does that sound like a fun kind of way to finish off the year? Is that all right? Okay. So let's dive into Philippians here. So we're going to just start, and then we're going to go, and then we're going to be done. So, so here we go. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1 book of Philippians, and it says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And just in case you're wondering, I'm reading out of the NIV because after two years ago making a big deal that I was going to start preaching out of the ESV and you guys all bought that Bible, I realized that I didn't know where anything was in the ESV. And um, have you ever had that experience? And so without really being courageous enough to admit it to you guys that, that I'd cost everyone in here like 20 to 40 bucks, depending on what kind of a cool Bible you bought. I've really been just preaching out of the NIV for the last two years. Um, there you go. That's my confession. Uh, but especially since we're going to read all of chapter one, you might want to know that I'm reading out of the NIV. Uh, so Paul and Timothy, I think it says that in all translations, just in case you wonder. So servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, Together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we get right off the bat here is that this is a letter of Paul, um, that Paul is writing 
to the church that he birthed, that he helped plant in the city uh, of Philippi on his second missionary journey that you can read about in the book of Acts, that it was as if he had this dream and there was somebody from Macedonia calling him and beckoning him in this dream to come and bring the good news to the people of Macedonia. And so Paul goes and he, he cuts from Asia over into Europe. This is actually the first place the gospel was ever preached in Europe, which is fascinating to me. Um, I've got a map. We can kind of look at it. I've got a clicker because that's fun. Um, and what you see is Paul left from the church at Antioch, which is a great name for a church. And then he continues on and crosses over and then preaches for the first time at a river near Philippi. So the city of Philippi is an ancient city. It's near gold mines, which is kind of why it became an outpost in the first place. And then Philip of Macedon, which was the father of Alexander the Great, he renamed the city when he came through after himself, which is what you do when you have ultimate power. You just, you name cities after yourself. Um, so this Philippi was named after Philip of Macedon. And it actually was the site of a lot of really cool battles in the early Roman Empire. So Mark Antony and Octavian had their big battle here. Uh, later on, Brutus and somebody else, these are all great names, um, had a big battle there. And then it, it really becomes a Roman outpost city. So it sits kind of uh, at the head of a fertile area right near the gold mines. It's got an acropolis, which is a great defensive position. And so the Roman Empire really... Uh, had it set up as one of their cities, one of their territories with a military garrison there. It wasn't a big Jewish city. And so there weren't enough Jews in the city for there to be a synagogue. And so the Jews met um, at that point in time when, when Paul shows up, they met down by the river. That was where they would meet to gather and to pray. And so Paul comes up and he preaches about Jesus. And there's a, a prominent woman in the city named Lydia, that responds and ends up entertaining uh, Paul and his entourage in her home. Uh, as the story goes, Paul ends up casting a demon out of somebody that was prophesying, making money for her kind of master. you got a slave situation going on here. And, and Paul finally deals with it, and this person gets incensed and kind of raises a ruckus in the city. They beat Paul and Silas. They throw him in prison there's an earthquake that night as Paul and, uh, there's an earthquake that night and the, in the morning, if you remember the story, the, the guard was going to kill himself because his prisoners had, had escaped. We, he assumed that his prisoners had escaped. Paul, being a Roman citizen, knows all this and he sits there. They had sat there all night even though the jail was open and they were singing songs. So later on in the book of Philippians, when we get to this whole idea of thanksgiving and praise, there's a real interesting history there with the birth of this church. So Paul yells out to the, the guard, don't kill yourself, we're here. And so then the guard says, wow, okay, well, why don't you guys go ahead and leave? And Paul says, no, absolutely not. We've, uh, we've been unjustly beaten because we're Roman citizens. So Roman citizens weren't supposed to be able to be beaten before a trial, and, and yet, here they were, they were beaten. And so Paul says, no, we're not going to just leave. You bring the magistrates down here to explain to us why we as Roman citizens were beaten, and then they can walk us out of here, which is a real small and fascinating thing if you want to talk about. Um, there are a lot of places where 
uh, civil society or our relationship as Christians with the powers that be or governing authorities um, kind of crops up in the New Testament. This would be one of those small places where you see Paul knowing his rights and actually demanding his rights as part of what he's doing with regard to the preaching of the gospel. Um, so the magistrates come down, they feel a little squeamish, they say they're sorry, and they send Paul on his way, and then he continues on down, ultimately getting to Athens and Corinth, and then heading uh, back by way of Ephesus. Um, so this is kind of Paul's second missionary journey, and what he's doing now with this letter, it's one of four letters that he wrote while he was in prison. Philemon was one, I think Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians, and so he's writing a letter to these people that are a part of this community that, that much earlier he had had kind of this privilege of helping found. And so you see this kind of fascinating thing. So if we jump back into the letter, we see in verse 3, Paul continue. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. And I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So what we begin to see is um, this kind of addressing the recipients and a thanksgiving for them. And I want to show you just a little kind of chart or outline of this book. Archaeologists have had a couple hundred years now of, of really hardcore archaeology in different areas of of uh, the Middle East and whatnot. It's kind of the age of, of archaeology. And and um, in dumps, in, in trash areas, they'll find these areas that were kind of like a trash dump, if you will. And they're gold mines for archaeologists because you find all sorts of tidbits that shed, light, uh, that shed light on what life was like in certain cities at certain periods of time. And what they've collected is literally hundreds of thousands of, of letters or letter fragments from around this period, uh, time period, before it, after it, and then in this time period as well. And what they're able to, to do with those letter fragments is see that there was a, a formula um, or a, kind of a way of going about writing a letter at this, um, at this stage of history. We all kind of know this. Nobody writes letters anymore. I always think about it every time I'm in an airport and they're selling fancy stationery. I'm like, I bet I'd be really cool if I bought really cool stationery and I actually wrote handwritten letters to people. I bet that would be really cool. And then sometimes I even buy the stationery and I've never yet actually written a letter to anybody. Um, <laughs> I didn't have to share that. Um, but you know, what I'm, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, does anyone else feel like that? Some of you actually do write letters, darn it. Um, but emails, we do it a certain way. Everyone has their certain sign-off, right? I, uh, I was freaking out the other day. I was emailing somebody, um, kind of one of my heroes in the academic world, and he used, he used my sign-off in his email to me. And so then I like paused, and I was like, I can't say the same sign-off, even though it's mine. It's, it's my move, right? I can't do that because it's the same as his and, and he's going to think I'm copying him and this is one of my idols and I can't do that. So I literally was sitting there trying to debate like how to sign this, this, this email off. But we have our kind of way of doing it. You know what I'm talking about? Um, well, in this period of time, there was a way of, of writing a, for, a, a letter. There's different kinds of letter, business letters, 
uh, other kinds of political letters. And then there was what was called the friendship letter format. And it kind of goes this way. You address and you greet. You pray for the recipients. You reassure. Uh, there's a reassurance about the sender. Hey, I'm great. Uh, there's a request for reassurance. Tell me how you are. I hope you're well. Information about movements of intermediaries like our common friends that are going between us. Because uh, again, you know, there wasn't the same kind of communication we had. So you bring those things into the letter, you exchange the greetings of the third parties, and then you close with a wish for health um, and kind of well-being. And so this, uh, I don't know the filter part, um, but this is kind of the format of what was called a friendship letter. And you see that with Paul greeting them in the name of, of himself and Timothy, and then he goes into his thanksgiving for them, uh, and then his prayer that we pick up in, in verse 9. So this is now Paul's prayer for them. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. In, uh, I'm sorry, I skipped a verse. Um, let's pick it up in verse 7. Um, so Paul is confident for them that, uh, who, who began a good work and then will carry it on to completion. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. Whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. And God himself can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. There's something that we could just gloss over here with this part. You got to remember the book of Philippians is written from Paul in jail. And he's probably been in jail now for... A, a year coming up on two years. He first got imprisoned in Jerusalem and then that wasn't going anywhere. So as a Roman citizen, he appealed to be able to take his case before Caesar. So they said, okay, to Caesar you go. And he goes on uh, kind of a sea voyage and it's one of the most fascinating things you read in the book of Acts, the, de the level of detail and historicity of that sea voyage going to Rome. And then he's under house arrest in Rome. And so he's alienated from the people he cares about. He's in a strange land. He's being kept kind of confined. He doesn't have freedom of movement. And it's been a long time now. Like he's been trapped like this for a long time. And so he's talking about these communities and these friends and he's writing a letter. And so you have to put yourself in that position and say, what is the level of emotion that's going on here? I think we read about the joy that shows up all throughout the book of Philippians. And we think that Paul just kind of, kind of, uh, you know, just, just fired this thing off in a moment of joy. You know, like, oh, he's probably between business meetings or he's on a plane traveling between one place and the other. And, and he's like, oh, hey, let me write a quick letter to, you know, the people at Philippi. Isn't that great? Hey, um, I've got joy. You've got joy. Let's all have joy. Isn't this wonderful? And that's not really the case. Um, He's, he's really separate from them under the threat potentially of death. And he hasn't been able to see any of his friends except for a few key people like Timothy um, or others. He hasn't been able to see very many people. And there's something interesting. I, when I travel, when I'm coming back on airplanes, and those of you that travel might be able to resonate with this, I get really sentimental and really emotional on planes when I'm coming back from a trip. Um, there's something about being over the Atlantic, no cell phone coverage, no internet, uh, in, a, in a little thing that's 30,000 feet above the ocean, 
Um, and I, you know, I've seen a bunch of movies recently where planes crash, um, like World War Z and you know, things like that. And you kind of get this thing like, this weird feeling of like, I, why am I here? Why am I in this airplane? I, I want to be with my family right now. I want to be with my kids right now. I want to be, I want to be with my people right now. And then you, you kind of think about that long enough because you got nowhere to go, and people are climbing over you. And if you're back by the bathrooms, they're standing in the aisle, and you're just, you're just, you're really trapped, like Paul was, you know. And you kind of begin to go, um, I really long to be somewhere else right now. Like what would happen if I, if I couldn't make it back home? And so it's interesting, I'll get teary-eyed or choked up at the drop of a hat when I'm traveling back from a trip. Watch a, a sad movie or something that has to do with kids. Like kids gets me. Um, and I'll get teary-eyed. I um, actually was coming, I was on a flight back from Dubai about a year ago and I drank coffee and I couldn't sleep and it was about, 11 or 12 hours into a 15-hour flight, and the only movie left that I hadn't watched of the new releases was Katy Perry's documentary. Um, so I watched it. And uh, she was a pastor's kid, um, which is why when I got home, I took all the guitars and music away from my kids. Um, and, um, but but it, the, the documentary is about her first world tour as she's becoming famous and, and exploding and, and, uh, and popularity. And it's about that whole kind of first year of, of this world tour. And as it goes along, it, she gets married to the comedian Russell Brand from England. And it's like really sweet. And then he starts being a jerk to her. And then they end up going through this really sad divorce. And I remember I was crying. Um, and I hated Russell Brand. And I... <laughs> I mean, I was choked up, tears in my eyes, and, and, the, and it's Katy Perry documentaries on, and I'm looking around, I'm like, nobody knows me here. <laughs> I'm safe here. But I, uh, I get choked up when I'm, when I'm on planes. Um, and so I, I bring us back here to Paul. Uh, but God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I mean, Paul wishes he was with these people, could share a meal with them, could enter into their homes, could talk to them. Um, he longs for this. The churches that he helped found or plant, like th those are his babies. I mean, that's, that's where his heart is at. Um, and he longs for that. And so then he continues on in verse 9, and this is my prayer. You people that I wish I was with, that I care about, that I think about day and night, I, I would pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. There's something interesting about the Hebrew scriptures. They combine knowledge and ethics as if they're two halves of the same whole, right? Our beliefs are, are what we do. It's only modern culture since the Enlightenment where we take knowledge to be things we know, whether or not it affects our behavior at all. Does that make sense? For, for Paul and the prophets of old, there's this unbelievable connection that knowing something, really believing it, means that it's incarnated in you. If, if you're not living it, you don't really know it. 
And so you see this fascinating kind of just or justice sentence here where, where Paul is just saying that your love may abound more and more in its knowledge and depth of insight. There's this combination between your knowledge, information, your beliefs, what you know, and your love or ability to love deeply those around you. And so you see that kind of come through here. And he says, I pray this so that you may be able to, in verse 10, discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, Paul shifts here and he begins to try and talk about what's been happening in his life. And so in verse 12, we see this. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. The message of Jesus is going forward. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. And so what he's saying is, I'm in, I'm in prison, I'm in house arrest, I'm being guarded by the Praetorian Guard. Um, we're going to see in a little bit here uh, the, the palace guards. And because of what I'm doing, God has had favor on that. And it's beginning to get out who I am and what I'm about. And there are other people here that are actually being emboldened by this. And they're beginning to talk about Jesus too. And there's something fascinating about the Palatine Hill um, if we just kind of roll forward here. Uh, so this is a picture of, of Nero's house. So Nero built the palace right around this time. Um, Nero is who uh, ultimately ends up killing Paul. And what you see here is that, uh, if you remember, Rome was burned in, in 64, and uh, everyone believes that Nero started the fire because what he did is he wanted to clear all this land so that he could build on it. So he basically cleared out 70% with a fire and instead of rebuilding it for the people, he re rebuilt it with like acres and acres for his, his own home. His home had a name. It was the Domus Aurea, his palace. And so this is where he wants to build it. This is um, what's called the Palatine Hill. The Palatine Hill, he kind of ends up um, right here building some stuff on. This was a marshy area that was kind of like a zoo. He brought in animals from around the world, would show it off. And he put a very big uh, 30 meters high statue of himself right here, kind of as the sun god, uh, himself resembling the sun god. And this area here, a couple hundred years later, is drained and a big um, building is built there, an arena, which is the uh, Latin word for, or the Greek word for sand. Um, so arena, and it got its name because of this huge statue of Nero, which, which in the ancient world was believed to be colossal, and so that's where the Colosseum ends up. So the Colosseum ends up here. You had the kind of the track, like the race track here, the Circus Maximus. This is the Via Agrippa, um, uh, the road, and, and then Palatine Hill where, where his kitchen and, and everything else was, and they've excavated the ruins of that, and um, Nero was really unpopular, so what happened was emperors after him would kind of just crush it down and build on top of it. They didn't want to be in Nero's palace, uh, and so what's fascinating is they, they've actually been able to go through those layers now and get to 
a lot of what was originally Nero's palace. But so you get this interesting kind of uh, thing going on here of Rome and, and the palace. Who knows where Paul was, was under house arrest, the house he was renting. But the, te- uh, the palace guards, the Praetorians, would have been in this area. And what you see is the first instance of a picture of Christian worship. So the reason I brought this up is I want to show you what's called the, um, if we can get the, maybe I can do it myself. Oh, that's, that's, so here's from the Colosseum, right? So I, uh, this is a picture that I was able to take. This is the Arch of Constantine, and 300 years later, and that commemorates uh, his victories. Whenever there's a, a huge victory, there would be an arch to the general. So there's uh, something called the Arch of Titus that's over on Palatine Hill, and in it you see people carrying plunder from Jerusalem away because um, this is when uh, they kind of plundered Jerusalem and all the holy objects. So you actually see in, inside the Arch of Titus, which kind of about there on the inside of the other one, um, people carrying off, Roman soldiers carrying off the menorah, like the candlestick um, of, of the temple. So it's amazing world religious history kind of collides here in Rome. But on the back side here is the Palatine Hill, and there was graffiti that was preserved because a wall was kind of built next to, and then on top of, like I told you, everything collapsing. And the graffiti was this. You can't really see it, but um, it, you can kind of see the head of a donkey and a cross, and I'll show you kind of a reverse negative version of it. And what it is, is it says, um, Alexa Manos worships his God. Um, so this presumably would be Alexa Manos. This is called uh, the Alexa Manos Graffito. Uh, Alexa Manos Graffiti, basically. And this is believed to be one of the first instances where you see people talking about Christian worship of Jesus dying on the cross as a savior. And obviously this is a bit um, tongue-in-cheek or making a mockery of Alexa Manos, who's um, presumably a Christian in this kind of story. So there it is again. And so there's something about this that's fascinating to me as we're reading this part real time of Paul being in Rome under house arrest and saying, oh, by the way, don't worry. God is blessing and using this time. And uh, I'm able to talk boldly and people know why I'm here and I'm finding favor and other people are emboldened to share about Jesus. And you fast forward 100 years or so and you see this kind of first instance of, hey, there's a Christian community in Rome. Fast forward a couple hundred more years beyond that and you actually see the end of the Colosseum um, and the beginning of Christian uh, Rome altogether. I mean, that's fascinating and, and if you think of Paul, I don't know that he would have been able to imagine this, how the seeds he was planting would be able to be used by God to literally reshape the world. And we could talk about all the bad things that happen about church history and as things kind of progress. But if you just look at it from the start to where things evolve, Paul was right. God was using his time in captivity. He was using his time there. He was, he was making known why Paul was in chains and the gospel went out. Fascinating stuff. Um, maybe we can just go back to, yeah, whatever the main slide is. 
So let's continue on. So then we get this fascinating thing in verse 15. Paul says, It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others do it out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. We take this verse a little bit um, askew regularly. We, we kind of talk about um, people who are abusing the pulpit or, or health and wealth preachers or televangelists that are making a lot of money off of, off of preaching Christianity. Does that make sense? And we're like, you know what? Whatever their motive it doesn't matter, at least Christ has preached. That's not really what's going on with Paul. Remember, Paul's in prison. There's this kind of new thing that he's bringing, this new message of Christ, uh, the Messiah having come. It's politically tenuous at best. He might lose his life for this. And he's beginning to find favor. Now, Paul's enemies in Rome, from whatever other religion it might be, or whether they've got some kind of other bone to pick, they're looking at it and saying, hey, listen, we want to call attention to the fact that he's here representing somebody other than Caesar as the son of God or somebody other than Caesar as the one that we have to worship or submit to or call Lord. We want to draw attention to that because we want people to begin to turn on him and that he'll get persecuted or ultimately put to death. Nero would go, uh, three different ancient sources talk about how Nero would go find Christians uh, and bring them into his garden, put them on sticks, pikes, and light them so that they would burn throughout the night as, as kind of a way of lighting up his garden. I mean, um, crazy stuff. But so people are basically saying, let's talk about Christ, let's, let's draw attention to this because our motive really is to get Paul in trouble. Does that make sense? Like these are enemies. I mean, these are wicked people trying to stir up trouble against Paul. And Paul's saying, you know, um, that might cost me my life. They might succeed. They might really make it difficult for me. But you know what? Look, if it's really drawing attention to the fact that I'm here as an ambassador of Christ, and if it's really drawing attention to Christ the center, the preaching of Jesus Christ, then you know what? Whatever the motives are of what they're doing, the end result somehow is spotlighting the message that I was here to preach, and I'm okay with that. I mean, do you see, do you see the tenor of that? It's a little different than talking about health and wealth gospel preachers making a killing. Um, there's something fascinating about um, the history or the narrative of the story of what's really going on here. So let's continue on just a tiny bit. And so Paul says this, second half of verse 18, Yes, I'm going to continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by my life or by my death, which might happen. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me because I serve Christ. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Um, Church history has it because it doesn't show up in the book of Acts that Paul was finally released after two years of imprisonment, probably because nobody from Jerusalem showed up to testify against him, and the charges were probably dropped. And so again, church history has it that he actually went uh, westward to the other parts of Europe. I mean, uh, it's dubious, but some believe he went even as far as like Great Britain uh, before coming back through Rome and, and being killed underneath Nero. But what we do know is there was a period of time where he got out and then comes back and is ultimately put to death. And so in some ways, his words are true, and he's able to continue on with the message. And so he says, convinced of this, I know that I'll remain, I know that I'll continue um, for your progress and join the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Um, there's something fascinating we see here. In verse 25, it says, I'll continue with all of you for your progress. We see a similar word up in verse 12. And it says this, that all of this has happened um, to really serve the advance of the gospel. So the Greek word here, um, prokopin, which is kind of a variant of our word progress, literally means pro, which means forward. And then the other word here is to cut. So you get this picture of like a pioneer or somebody in the Amazon, or somebody blazing a trail, that they're cutting their way forward. They're, they're laboring and working their way forward. And so Paul kind of, in a fascinating way, talks about the advance of the gospel, and then he's saying that this is going to continue for your progress and your joy. And you really see this idea of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of Christ, being cut into Europe as Jesus, or, or I'm sorry, as Paul moves on his path and goes on his journeys. We draw that little line on the map, but you could also say that line is a line of progress or advancement where the gospel is being cut into society and culture and world history. And I look at that, and there's something interesting about um, etymology, right? There's a, there's, you can use the word progress as a noun or as a verb. Um, and... People in England, where we get English from, and they're a little bit snotty about it sometimes, um, they'll talk about the verb form of progress is an Americanism. It's an American invention. That, you know, that the English, they just used it as a noun. And, and there is that kind of American idea of progress. You know what I'm talking about with that? Like, it's always evolving, always progressing. It's always triumphalistic. But what we, what we tend to do is we put that into our own life. Like, my progress or my advancement is financially or in terms of my reputation or in terms of success or in terms of getting what I want or in terms of, and you see something fascinating with Paul here saying, um, whether I live or die, it's Christ. And what I'm really talking about here and what God is really doing in my life is about the progress of the gospel and about the advancement that we're all a part of because Christianity doesn't serve me. I serve the cause of Christ. I mean, do you see the difference there? Christianity doesn't serve me. 
It's not about my individual progress, but it's I serve the cause of Christ and it will progress and advance. We've been given that promise. And so there's something that comes to the surface right here that I want to call attention to as we close. And it's this. Um, when Paul uses these words that are, that are, it's almost pithy and famous and poetic, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, he sets a value chain here. What I mean by value chain is that if you hung your values on a chain, one from the other, okay, you realize that if this one goes, everything below it goes too. Does that make sense? Okay. So ultimately, the higher up the chain, the more committed we are to protecting it, right? So if, if we ultimately are, are given a choice between, say, this top value hanging on the chain or one that's um, one or two levels deep, we will always protect and double down and encircle, defend the top value, right? And we don't care if the lesser one goes away because we're always going to protect the top value. If the top one goes, in our thinking, everything goes. Do you understand what I'm saying? So for Paul, he was saying, top value for me is Christ. Beneath that is my life. And so look, whether I live, whether I die, it doesn't matter. You've got to understand it's about Christ. Christ is the center. Christ is the top of my value chain. Christianity doesn't serve me. I serve it. There's something that's been blowing my mind and grieving my soul. And we, it's, it's this disease we all have in us of individualism. And, and it scares the, the hell out of me that I might or do or at times do have things that are higher on my value chain than Christ. And we, there's an epidemic of divorce happening right now, at least in my little world, okay? And I, I, my kids will look at me and say, Dad, don't understand. And my answer to my kids is, yeah, I don't understand either. I do understand, but I don't understand. And then they'll ask me, and, and I'm like, well, somebody's making a choice. But I don't understand, Dad. Well, here's Mary Joy. At the end of the day, going their own way was the greatest value. Well, Dad, can't you say something to them? Mary Joy, if somebody is going to choose their own way over God, if somebody doesn't care what God thinks about what they're doing, there's very little that your dad can say. Um, if they're willing to turn their back on God, they're, they're, it's pretty easy to turn their back on me. And so what we begin to find, and it doesn't have to be divorce, it can be any number of things that we're selling our souls to, but if we put that above Christ, we can come sit here for 20 years. Why? Because Christianity is serving our ultimate desire and our ultimate end, which is the goodness of our life or comfort or, or our, just our desire to be who we want to be or have the fellowship we want to have or to feel good about ourselves. But what happens when we're not talking about eight layers deep, nine layers deep, ten layers deep, but the top one and the next one down come into conflict? I want to walk away from my marriage. God, God doesn't want that for me. In fact, that might in some way be a blemish um, on the cause of Christ. Like, well, 
I deserve to be happy. I want to be happy. I can find plenty of excuses to be happy. I can find plenty of people that will tell me that I can go be happy. And, and I, I'm listening to voices that make me think the grass is greener on the other side of the hill. Um, when in reality, we all know the grass is greener where you water it. I mean, period. Okay? Um, so the voices I'm listening, and I, I begin to be able to kind of go a different way, and then Christianity just becomes, oh, well, that's just a religion anyways. You know, and if there is a God, he'll like me because I'm a good person. I'm at, I'm at least better than, you know, most of the other jokers in my poker group. You know, like, you know what I'm saying? And we, we protect the dominant value. And what we find in doing so is that ultimately our dominant value is ourselves. It's why Jesus didn't sell discipleship cheap. He looked at people and said, um, it's real simple. You can, you can follow me. But you're turning from the life you had to a different life. You're going to literally choose death. And then anything good you get beyond that is a blessing. Like, you're going to identify with me and my suffering. I'm the dominant value in the value chain. And so anything that, that, that comes your way, whatever trial besets you, that you're going to hold strong. Why? Because this is at the center. That's the dominant commitment at Antioch. It's the first one out of the gate. Um, if you, the four commitments at Antioch, that we're going to be Christ-centered. And then out of that, uh, uh, um, that, that we're going to have authentic spirituality, intentional community, and that we're going to be missional in our mindset because if we go preach, we do cut a swatch through history and time with the advancement and the progress of the news of Jesus Christ. But it begins with understanding that Christ is the top of the value chain. And so there's something fascinating about this verse that we have to grapple with that just says, for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Continuing in verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here that I still have. So I wrote these three questions down, thinking about myself. This isn't preachy. What I love about the book of Philippians is it's not preachy. Paul's being hardcore and he's talking to you about truth or us about truth, but he does it in this passionate, loving, heartfelt, exhortational way, calling us into this fellowship and into unity, into like-mindedness and one spirit with regard to the gospel. So it's not this like heavy, duty-bound thing. So when I wrote these three questions down, these are diagnostic questions, I was thinking about myself. Um, so I'll share them with you. Um, is Christianity serving me or am I serving the mission of Christ? We talk about that with... Uh, church size and things all the time. You guys know that I, I fight hard not to, to care at all about church size because 
our mission to be an authentic expression of Christianity in Bend, Oregon, and to have a shaping voice in global Christianity is all about the progress and advancement of the message of Christ. And the size of this group does not necessarily have any bearing on our mission statement. Does that make sense? It can be a distraction. So I want to look at things and always evaluate it against our mission statement and saying, are we truly blazing a trail because of our devotion to Christ? Is Christianity serving me or am I serving the mission of Christ? If the former, I'll easily walk away when it doesn't serve my purpose. If the latter, I'll stand firm even through suffering and persecution. So the last question was this, do I care more about the progress or the advancement of my life or do I care more about the cutting uh, forward, the blazing of the trail of the cause of Christ? Um, I, I know what I'm striving for. I know what I want to be true and I know that I want what I believe in, in what I know to really incarnate itself in how I live, how I talk, what my actions are, the decisions I make. And so this is the journey that together we get to find ourselves on. And so may we uh, unite around that. I, I've got a few words I've got to share about church finances, but I'd rather just close in prayer and then I'll share those um, because I'm, yeah, I don't want to conflate the two. <laughs> you guys like, so what's coming? Um, let's pray. Father, we, we as a church community do come before you. And we, as uncomfortable as it is, I do believe we want you to uh, search our hearts and to show us what's true about ourselves, to help us really understand where our value system um, might lie, that you would be able to point it out, draw it to the surface, and begin a work with us on redeeming that area of our life, that every part of our heart would someday be submissive to you, seek your sovereign will and leading, uh, and not in any way be rebellious or self-serving. Um, and it's a long process, Father. We know it is. I'm grateful for this community. I'm grateful that we get to have these conversations on a regular basis I'm grateful for the encouragement that we can bring to each other. I'm grateful. And we want to give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.